Hi, I'm David Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And this is part two of our three-part series on The Outcast called Highlights from Outfest, where I talk with filmmakers who had work featured at the 2021 Outfest Film Festival. The Outfest LA Film Festival is one of the largest film festivals in North America, and this year there were over 170 LGBTQ films selected. And joining me to kick off this episode, where we talk about two of them, is Mike Dougherty, Director of Festival Programming for Outfest Los Angeles. Hello, Mike! Hey, how you doing, Dave? Now, the first movie on today's episode is All Boys Aren't Blue, adapted and directed by Nathan Hale Williams. Mike, tell us about this movie. Yeah, initially we, we premiered it at Outfest Fusion back in the spring, which is our QT BIPOC-focused film festival. Uh, Nathan, you know, submitted it. Nathan is a friend of Outfest from a while back. Um... And we we love his work. Um, he adapted this memoir from George M. Johnson, a black non-binary author. And it is essentially, it's three main monologues performed by three different actors representing different periods of George M. Johnson's life. And it kind of examines expectations of black masculinity and what that means when it's um, a queer black person, um, you know, fighting those perceptions and dealing with that. Um, and it's just beautifully performed and also visually done very interestingly in that, you know, I'm someone who, I know there's a set of people who don't often respond to like filmed plays or like things that are more meant for theater that are turned into films. I love that. Right. I love, I love actors and I love it when somebody can do something interesting visually with something that is more of a performance piece. And I think, I mean, these three actors are just incredible in the in the stories they tell and how they evoke such emotion really just standing in a room um but like it just the small details of what nathan does with those rooms and with the with guiding the performances just make it such a stirring experience it's only i think 44 minutes long yeah it's, but, it's um, basically a long is short but but yeah. it's 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 real powerful and i agree with you about the performances the performances are all really, really, really good. And the way that he keeps it visually moving, it, you know, as you say, is really interesting and cinematic. But Nathan's own, like, kind of journey into how he got here is really interesting, too. He's done so many things. He started off as an actor, a child actor, and then he was a professionally trained dancer. He got his JD. He's an actual lawyer, and he runs a company. And I, I you know, our conversation, like, goes over the film, but also, you know, I, I don't know how he sleeps at night. Like, what do you, I don't even know, I don't even know how you do all that. It's it's amazing, is, like, what he's done already. And he's not even, you know, he's, he's not even hit middle age yet. It's amazing. I just tell myself, you know, putting together a festival during COVID times, there were many times where, like, I'm working out of the guest room in my apartment, and I just, <laughs> I just have to stand up from the laptop and lay face down on the guest bed for, like, 20 minutes. To, and I just tell myself, I was like, you're only seeing the good success parts in public of people yes, yes. <laughs> like folks like that are amazing, but I know they lay face down on the bed 20 minutes a day. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> I know What's it, amazing. Nathan. I know it. <laughs> and our second movie today isn't a movie. It's a streaming series called Boy Culture. And it's the official follow-up to the 2006 gay hit Boy Culture. And both were co-written and directed by Q. Allen Broca and star Daryl Stevens, both of whom I talk with a little later. But tell us about Boy Culture. The original movie played at Outfest like 15 years ago, and it was this big gay festival hit, right? Yeah, it's a very popular film on the gay circuit. And, you know, hearing that it was going to have this follow-up, obviously it's something that you're like, well, that just makes complete sense to put in Outfest. <laughs> but let's hope it's good. And then we watched the first couple episodes, and it, it is, it's got like this great attack of um you know the the lead character x i believe yeah. uh, he goes by um is now an aging escort sex worker like uh, attempting yeah. to to still navigate that business when like the young folk have taken over and it's and it's changing um it, from the ways that he is is used to it and he's trying to keep up with that that younger set whilst you know maintaining a romantic life possibly um it, right. it, and it just and it creates this great ensemble of characters like that is really um, explores, you know, relationships and sex in a really fun, positive way um, that allows people their quirks and isn't super judgmental about them, but like also has fun with them. Like it, it was just a really enjoyable time to, to sit through. It's really hilarious. Yeah. And, yeah. and and it's also interesting because his boyfriend is now his ex-boyfriend, Daryl Stevens, who he has had in the interim between the feature and the series, a, a long-term relationship with. They are now broken up, but now he has to he has to kind of navigate what that means and mm. what is he going to do now? And like, you know, as far as the sex work goes, like how is that as a, a man in his 40s, um, you know, how does that work? You know, and and mm-hmm. and how do you quote unquote rebrand yourself? Which I think is mm-hmm. really hilarious. I agree. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just you just spoke so beautifully. I don't know what more I could add to that. I, I, you know, I get I get one I get one time a season where I actually like have a coherent like sentence that I can string together. Um, so articulate. From the movie All Boys Aren't Blue, I spoke with the man who adapted it from the memoir and directed the movie, Nathan Hale Williams. Nathan Hale Williams, thank you so much for joining me here. It is my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about your film, All Boys Aren't Blue. Uh, How did this come about? And um, I I just watched it, and it's real fascinating. Tell, Tell us the backstory. So, you know, it's it's one of those serendipitous moments. You know, I was uh, had just finished reading the memoir by George M. Johnson, and I said to myself, I need to get in touch with them to let them know how much it resonated with me as a black gay man growing up here in American society. Right. It's really George's growing up from childhood until until they were in their you know early twenties, and so it's the first part of their memoir. They're actually, they're, uh, the second part of the memoir came out yesterday called "We Are Not Broken." Oh my gosh! And so yes, yeah, so so I had just finished reading it, and then like clockwork, uh, I got a call from Amara Kennedy from the AIDS Healthcare Foundation and George, and they wanted me to do a dramatic reading of some chapters from the book. And so, you know, I, I took that as a sign from the universe that this was, you know, a project that I definitely needed to do. It was at the end of 2020 and I had made a deal with myself that I wasn't going to do anything else because, you know, what 2020 was. It exhausted all of us. <laughs> and, you know, this was in November. But 
when things like that happen, you, you can't ignore it. You, you know, it's just a sign that, you know, from the universe that you have to, you have to do it. And I'm so glad that I did. It's become such a wonderful project in, in, in my portfolio. Um, and so, you know, they, they approached me about doing a dramatic reading and, almost like filmed, you know, live to tape right. of, you know, three excerpts from the book. I asked them for artistic license to go beyond that because I wanted to create a cinematic experience because I felt like the text deserved that and I felt like I could do it justice um, by elevating the dramatic reading in a way that made it a film. And and so the, the film premiered on National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day, February 7th. And um, then we've been doing the festival circuit. And uh, that that's how the project came about. It's a real fascinating way that you treat this because basically it's three different actors reading basically three different chapters of, of this memoir of growing up black and gay and and three different, you know, periods of his life. Basically, you know, they're sitting down in front of the camera and kind of performing for the camera, but you don't just let it be that. You you make it more cinematic because we're suddenly cutting to other things. We're cutting to photos or videos or other things that kind of supplement, that kind of bring us into this world in this really organic way. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I you know, I, I despise boring. Um, I never... <laughs> I, <did laughs> you know, I, I don't know many people who like boring in independent film. It's like, right, it's, a, yeah. it's the wrong occupation to be yeah, in, like, you know. I, I, and so, like, you, you go to the movies to be entertained, and so I wanted to make sure, I mean, as, as borrowing from USA Today, uh, they called it visual poetry. I, you know, I, I, I really appreciated that um, that label, because that's exactly what the goal was, was to infuse pictures from George's life. George is a non-binary journalist and author, and and so from their life, we infused pictures from, from their archives. And then I also borrowed some pictures just from other uh, sources that, um, you know, encapsulated and represented what we were saying in, in the, the text. And with regard to the text, you know, George was very good about giving me artistic license to edit and adapt the text so that it would feel like a film. You know, it would have the beats and the the the, the precepts of, of storytelling. And so um, we really, you know, elevated the work, I think, in a way that allows the text to sing, but it also makes the film interesting and entertaining and it also allows the actors to do this amazing job. I mean, we have the we have some of the best actors uh, doing this and bringing George's words to life. Well, let's talk about the performances and how, because you have uh, an acting background. That's kind of how you you started as a as a child actor, correct? Correct, correct. I um you know it's so funny in in, in retrospect um, I knew when I saw the color purple, which is remains my favorite film of all time, that. I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I didn't have the language or, or, or even the references to as a black man, the black boy growing up on the south side of Chicago to say, that's what I want to do. I want to be a director. I want to be a filmmaker. And what I did have the reference for was being an actor. And, you know, I've always been dramatic. I've always been a drama king and, and not afraid <laughs> of the, the spotlight. And so, I, you know, I, for all intents and purposes, I, I just settled on that. I knew I wanted to do that in entertainment, and I knew I wanted to entertain people. And I, I had the references to be an actor. And, and I, I acted, you know, 
throughout, you know, from high school to college. Um, it was even my minor in college. And, and so I'm, you know, I'm a trained actor. And then I realized that I hated auditioning. And so... And well, I don't know I many actually, actors that like auditioning, right, I mean, to exactly, be honest. But it really, you, you, was it just fear? Was it stress? Or was it just like, I feel like I'm this commodity? What was it about it that, that really kind of you reacted negatively to I mean nobody likes it but yeah I think that for me being a type A alpha you know I wouldn't say control I was gonna say control it's a control thing it is it is (laughs) and and I feel that acting is one of you know you're always pretty much begging for someone to pick you right and and also you know at the time that was my rationale but really what it was it wasn't my destiny Uh, the acting training really was to inform my abilities as a director and a filmmaker Um, and you know I can say that now because you know it's 20 years into this um, that you know the acting training really was to lead me to directing and being able to direct actors efficiently but really at the time the reason why I didn't want to continue being an actor is because I wanted to be the one that chose and not being the one that was asking to be chosen. This is absolutely a story, though, that I hear from a lot of actor friends of mine who who really kind of survived the industry. Basically, at one point or another, they realize that they have to be quasi-producers. Like, in one way or another, like, if they become a writer or a director or whatever it is, they have to make the thing happen. And I love that. And, that, you know, and that, for me, was what um, was the most appealing. For the, for many, many years, I was a producer. And, you know, what, the, the quote that close, closes out all of my emails is, if opportunity doesn't knock, build a door, by Milton Burrow. And as we know, over the course of, of being in this industry, the industry's changed a great deal. Oh, yeah. um, just in terms of technology has, in, has in the opened last up five access. years. It's yeah. like in the last two years, it's changed right. a lot. Right. You have no real excuse then, you know, because you can make content on your phone. Yeah. You can make high quality content on your phone. And so, you know, being passive in this business is never going to serve you well. You do have to be aggressive. And and I felt that I could make much more of a mark Um in telling stories as a producer. And then ultimately I pivoted, uh, at the ripe age of 38 to, uh, become a director and a writer. Um, and, um, even though all of that stuff was in the information that I had since I've growing up, you know, I started writing when I was eight years old, um, you know, everything changed, but I I now get to be in control of the stories that I want to tell like this one, uh, versus being asked, you know, auditioning and and, and asking to be a part of stories being told. Well, but tell me if I'm wrong, but what I gather from the film, I don't get the sense that you are not open to collaboration and suggestion. I don't think you get a short like All Boys Aren't Blue if you're not open to the actors and and maybe even the cameraman and maybe even the editor like bringing you ideas and you kind of making it happen within that context. Oh no, I'm totally collaborative. This is I don't I don't take full credit for any of this. You know, I I I've often on even the post about uh this film, I'm often crediting my editor and my DP, my editor Hasiel McBride and the director of photography Brian Bradley as being Great stuff. my you know, my my co-conspirators in this yeah. that because I had a vision, but 
I don't know how to operate a camera and I don't know how to edit. Um, and they translated my vision and what the actors did. And then I got these amazing actors um, that brought their A-game. And then I had this amazing text. And, you know, out of the the five films I've done in the last, you know, six years, this is the first one I've, I've, I've done that I haven't written. And um, Oh, wow. But, but yeah. And so, but that, but that's that's also you developing as an artist. Yes. Don't you think that's that's a that's kind of a, a, a relinquishing of control right there, because you're bringing in someone else's experience and vision, and you're kind of reveling in that now. Yeah, exactly. And I think that you know, I think that most people who've ever worked with me or worked on my sets. One of the key takeaways is one is that we have fun because I have a no jerks rule when I'm hiring people and hiring crew. It's just so important to have a rule like that because especially at these budget levels, like you can't afford that. You can't no. afford any kind of like, you know, ego or craziness. I think you can't afford it at any budget level. I think that this is a privilege and a blessing that we get to do this work. You know what I mean? Like this is a privilege and a blessing, even though it is madness. I, I say movie making is magic and madness and, and I wouldn't have it any other way, even though it's, it is, it is work and it's hard work. It is a blessing to be able to tell stories. It is a blessing to do things that people only dream about. You know, I, I yeah. couldn't have told if you, told my 10 year old self when he was watching The Color Purple that one day that I would make films and one day that I would do this and I'd make a living from it um, and, and that one day people would be in theaters watching my stuff, he wouldn't have believed you. And so I take it as a blessing and I treat it as such. And, you know, I, I come to work to have fun as well as to work hard. And so jerks, jerks just don't have place in my space. It sounds like you had a very personal connection with the writing of George Matthew Johnson. Well, their experiences parallel mine in so many ways. Like, you know, we hear all too often the narratives, particularly around black queer um, boys, uh, you know, the narratives, you know, I'd rather have a dead son than a gay son. You, you yeah. hear the narratives of uh, black queer people being ostracized from their family and their friends. Yeah. That's not my experience, you know, and that, that wasn't George's experiences. George ex- George's experiences were that their family was accepting and inviting, that their nanny was integral in their growth and and protecting them from, you know, kind of the world and that their experiences were one of difficulty because of how the intersection of blackness and queerness you know, butt each other up, but also one where their family um, was supportive and loving. And that that equals mine. My family has always been supportive of me. When I came out, you know, I remember my mom calling me and and we laughed about it. And and and, you know, my grandfather, who I called Big Daddy, you know, you know, he was very supportive and my entire family saved two members of my family, my entire family was supportive of me. And so I felt like it was necessary to tell this story to to give a counter narrative to the doom and gloom of the non-accepting black family, right? Right. And, you know, one of the things that I often 
talk about when I'm doing speeches and keynotes and stuff like that about being black and gay in this country is that often you find yourselves on the outskirts of the two communities that are supposed to embrace you the most. Like so in the black community, you find yourself on the outskirts because of your gayness. In the gay community, you find yourself on the outskirts because of your blackness. And then so you're you're often finding yourself in search of a home. Yeah. Um, and and so what George has done in their memoir is address those issues straight on and the intersectionality of those issues in a way that I think is brilliant and in a way that I think is unique and novel towards a young adult audience because this book is geared towards young adults. And I wish I had a book like, you know, this book, All Boys Aren't Blue, when I was growing up uh, to help in my process and my evolution. Um, and so it was it was one of those must-do projects because I want this, this piece, uh, you know, to be a visual representation of the brilliance of the memoir and then lead people to the memoir itself. I'm going to change the subject just a little bit. Yes. Can we, can we talk about Jennifer Lewis? Oh, we because, certainly can talk about because, Jennifer Lewis. Because, like, the moment, like, okay, she shows up, like, her credit comes up. I'm like, oh, it's Jennifer Lewis. Um, okay, how did you get her? And what was that like? And I just adore her. Well, Jen is, <laughs> Jen is a dear, I mean, who doesn't love Jenny? Um, Jen is a dear friend of mine, and she's been a friend of mine for 15 plus years, she, we met on the set of my film, Dirty Laundry, uh, which uh, she starred in with Loretta Devon and Rockman Dunbar and, and a host of other people. And we fell in love with each other. And we, you know, we became quick friends and then, you know, ultimately we became family. She is, she is a part of my family. I lived with her for a couple of weeks when I first moved to Los Angeles. And so she's been, she's been a part of my family for 15 plus years. And so when we were fielding the actors uh, to play the various roles, I, you know, I proposed Jennifer and George almost fell out because they said that, you know, they'd always imagined their nanny was Jennifer, played by Jennifer Lewis. Oh, that's and, amazing. And, and so basically I called Jen up and I said, I'm, this is low commitment from you. This is what I need. <laughs> and this is what it's about. It's for, you know, HIV AIDS Awareness Day. And we know she has been, you know, a 30 plus year, you know, advocate and activist. She's been outspoken you know, fighting. About, about HIV yeah. AIDS forever. Yeah. And so she's, you know, she calls me Nene DeLion. That's a whole long story. <laughs> and so she said, yes, Nene. Uh, and don't ask me for, and she was like, I'll do this, but don't ask me for nothing else for 10 years. And, um, <laughs> and then she did it. And then she saw the film and she called me crying oh. um, because of what it meant to her fight for equality, her fight for visibility, her fight as an ally and advocate for the LGBTQI plus community and her fight against, you know, HIV and AIDS. And, 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 and to make her proud, I think was one of those quintessential moments for me. It was a full circle moment for me because um, she's seen the trajectory of my career. I met her as the executive producer, producer of a film, and now I'm directing her in a film. And, um, so she got me to crying too. And mm. uh, yeah, so it was, we, and, and I couldn't imagine hit anybody else's voice coming in and being so distinctive, but Jennifer Lewis, because there's only one. No. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's nobody, anything like her. She's, she's a force of nature. Looking at your background though, it's like, I think it's enough to make like Alexander the Great feel like an underachiever because it's, 
<laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Okay, so you started as a child model. Mm-hmm. You were a classically trained dancer. Mm-hmm. You got your law degree. You're a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You're also a producer and mm-hmm. actor. And you've written how many books? Five. The fifth oh, one okay. just came out in July. <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna have a lie down right now because <laughs> I need one my, too. Can I come lo- lie down next to you? Because I'm tired. I'm tired, David. I'm tired. I mean, you're you're just you're just heating up. I mean, like it's it's amazing. Like like how. I, I mean, I guess the obvious question for anybody in, in the arts is like time management. How do you do all of this stuff? How do you make it all work? Well, you know, I am, I am, uh, what's the word? Excessively is not the right adjective. I am super organized. I'm hyper organized. And so, you know, I, um, it's the only way that I can manage it all. But I also um, am, I also thrive in, in busy. You know, I also thrive when I have multiple things to do. And I just love what I do. I really love it. And I, I love a friend of mine, Bevy Smith, once told me, you're going to have to pick. You're going to have to choose. And, you know, and, and, and for a minute, or I thought she you? might be. No, you don't. <laughs> you know, you do not. And, you know, and I haven't had to. And I I love telling stories. I'm a, I, I, When people ask me what I am, I really am a storyteller because I tell stories across a variety of mediums. And when people ask me what my favorite is, I ask, I tell them, well, what day is today? Because I have a different favorite, whatever. I'm working on now is my favorite, you know, so I love writing books. I love television. Television, I am, I always tell people I'm the cat, I'm a couch potato, you know, minus the couch potato body, except for during quarantine. I had all of it. <laughs> well, I, I think that fool. was for, that was for everybody. Everybody, yes. like literally, <laughs> it is literally, I have to say, it is just this month that I feel like my body's going back to maybe close to what it was in like March of 2020. Like, like I'm just, I yep. barely, like, I barely see the horizon. Me too. And everybody who maintained it, I hate you. And I don't know how they you. Do. I think it's yeah, a different, I, I think they have a different genes because like, yeah. if I, honestly, if I'm not at the gym lifting something really heavy, I will, I will put on fat because there's no yeah. other way. There's like literally with my body type, no other way to do it. And Same. we're and, twins, but I, but I know, I know there are so many people, um, that, just it it's like it I don't know. It's like they have and a different I, and I hate them all. It's the, <laughs> I don't hate anybody in the world but those people. <laughs> anybody anybody who didn't gain weight during the pandemic, you're the only people in the world that I cannot stand. So how do you feel about yourself? <laughs> so you you've been involved with Outfest for a bit, right? Yep. When so when I, did you when did you get involved with Outfest? So my film, The Ski Trip, uh, my first film, The Ski Trip, uh, you know, pr- screened at Outfest back in. 2004 or five. Um, then our film Dirty Laundry had a big premiere. There it was a, a spotlight film. I think we won an award. I can't remember because it was like eons ago. It was 15 years ago. We just celebrated 15 uh, our 15th anniversary this past weekend in Atlanta. Um, and then a couple of a few years ago, I was asked to join the board of Outfest, and I joined the board, and it was a wonderful board and wonderful people. And then I actually stepped down from the board because I told them that I was at the point in my career where it was starting to really warm up again and get yeah. heated. And I was like, and I want to be a filmmaker. I mean, not want to be a filmmaker. I want to focus on filmmaking right now. Maybe I'll right. revisit the board at some other point. And so it was wonderful to return a year later with a film proving what I was saying correct. 
Yeah. I mean, there are only so many hours in the day and you kind of have to zealously guard like what you do. And, and certainly mm-hmm. like, you know, your, you know, your output is, is insane. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. I, I don't even know how you did all of this stuff. It's like, I'm reading, I'm like, Oh my God. Like, yeah. I don't either. Sometimes, you know, sometimes <laughs> I, I have to tell you, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a spiritual practice for me. And I say spiritual versus business or whatever. For me, sometimes when I'm down and I don't have the energy, I will right. read the bio and just to remember that I've done it before. I can do it again when I'm down on myself and I'm like doubting myself and feel like, can I finish this screenplay? Can I direct this thing? And so I, I'll read my bio because you forget what you've done. Yeah. And I'm like, who is that? Like, who was that guy? Where, did, and where, where the <laughs> hell did he get all the time to do that? But yes, I've been involved with Outfits for a very long time. I love the organization. You know, they will always have my support. And, and, and you know, in the future, you know, maybe I will rejoin the board, you know, after I've won my Oscar and Emmy and, <laughs> you know, and I've made a gazillion dollars, you know, and I can be more of an a, a ongoing asset. So I'll ask you a personal question, like, because one of the things that independent filmmakers in particular and, and artists, independent artists have to deal with because it takes up so much time is how do you manage relationships? Well, that's a great question. And, and you know, the, the short answer is I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the longer answer is, you know, I was in a long-term relationship for eight years with um, Keith Boykin, CNN commentator and author. And, you know, that was the beginning of my career, you know. And so it was I was able to manage that a little bit better. And we also lived together and worked side by side and, and did the same thing. So um, that, was, that was easier then. I think that... That um, God, the universe, ha- has understood that I am in a building phase of my career now. And so I am the king of the three, four month relationship, right? Um, <laughs> I-, I-, I got that down pat. I-, I am the best thing coming for 90 to 120 days. But you get me to month five and I'm a hot mess. And so, you know, um, and, 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 you know, and, and, and and so you know I date I I, can, I I'm, I'm I've been blessed that I I've consistently dated but like I said I, I'm the king of the four to five monthers. It's and, hard. It's really hard. It's hard. Yeah. To do, it's hard for everybody. Yeah. Who, who who wants to do ambitious creative things of which a film is has to be. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's exactly it, and that's why you know I have to curate you know, who I do date. And so if you're an overly needy person who needs a lot of attention and a lot of, you know, FaceTime and, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm probably not the person you'd want to date. But if you are also busy and you are also, you know, secure in who you are or whatever. Secure's um, the word. Yeah, really? yeah. Then we can, because, you know, our business is our business. You know, it is, you know, <clears throat> It is, you almost have to have a one-track mind when you're doing a big project. You know, as you've said, you become consumed and obsessed with it. And everything else takes a back seat, you know. And, you know, thankfully, I have a very loving friendship and family circle that understands and supports me being busy. And so when I'm checked out, they understand that I'm checked out. Um, I haven't found that in a partner yet, but I'm very confident that I will. But I also know that I'm in a, that the building stage again. You know, I'm, right. I'm in a different phase of my career. And I've always said, you know, I'm going to find the next long-term 
hopefully life and I think forever is such a such a hard thing and pressure filled thing to put on any relationship. But I think that the next person is gonna come when I'm in a bit of a cruising. Right now I'm in an ascension moment uh-huh. and when I get to the next level and I'm cruising a little bit, that's when he'll show up. I'll, I'll um, tell you something, you, you will never be able to know when no, he shows up. Yeah. Trust me. I'm not I don't get stressed about it because I know it will come. Right. Um you know I know that that's fantastic. Am, that's great. That's, great. I, that's ideal. Yeah, I'm great in relationship. I do. I've always wanted a family, and I've, you know, I, you know, I, I think that you know, I've done the work, the good amounts of expensive therapy, and um, Ther- lots of Deepak Chopra. <laughs> And lots of Oprah, you know, that I think that I'm good in relationship, but, you know, um, but so I'm, I'm sure it'll come. And I think that's why I don't stress out when the four to five monthers don't work out because I know it'll come and I know it'll be a, like a puzzle piece. Um, and I, I'm one of those people that I'm coming to the relationship whole. I don't want a better half or anything. I don't believe in that. I believe that, you know, a great relationship is two holes coming together to form a separate, I mean, a, di- a distinct entity from them as individuals yes and so i know that that person he's out there and um i have faith i have all the faith in the world and i and i'm happy that if he shows up at 55 and we have 20 years um you know of 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 bliss versus you know 25 years or 30 years of if you don't get out my face you know (laughs) (laughs) you can do mostly bliss and then every once in a while get out of my face right yeah yeah (laughs) It's like every every couple of months, like, okay, I need a weekend. Get out of my face. Right, right. Get out of my face. <laughs> Tell me about your company. Inhale Entertainment. Uh, it's a double yet another thing. Yet another thing that you've done. It's like, oh, yeah, and yet you have a an entertainment company as well. Yeah. So I founded Inhale in 2004 or five or something like that. And I don't do math, so I, I, I don't know how long that's been, but... It's, been a um, it's a play. It's obviously a play on my name, but it's got a double entendre. I have I have been known to like cannabis and uh, no. and still do. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't know anything. I, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> yeah. I have we, no we, idea. We Californians <laughs> have like, no idea like, what that, that had, is. That had nothing to do with me getting through this pandemic. Nothing right, at yeah. all. It's like, how did you get through it? It's like that was a very that was a core. A core, like, you know, element of how we got through it. You got through it because of inhale entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, I founded the company when we did the ski trip. And and over the course of the years, we've done everything from events to films to to, um, television to, you know, uh, management, which we did for a a short period of time because I realized that, that was not my ministry to manage artists, uh, but it's it's a company that I have a very big and broad vision for what it can do. I really love what uh, Ava DuVernay, who actually, you know, a trivia thing was my publicist on uh, our film Dirty Laundry. Oh, back when she before, was a publicist, that's right, because yeah. she came from a PR background. I remember reading right. that. And her very first short film, um, we would put before Dirty Laundry uh, wow. when we would screen the film. And so uh, I love what she's done with Array. And I love what Lena Waithe has done with Hillman Grab Productions. Um, and I love what Steven Spielberg, who's my favorite director, has done with Amblin, you know. And so I, it, it's a company that's been a while around, you know, since 2004 or 5. Um, but it's just 
you know, really starting to grow and I have really big dreams for it. And, you know, I literally can envision what the office looks like if we ever even go back to offices. Um, but yeah, that's my company, Inhale Entertainment. That is amazing. And let me know, like, what's, what are you, what are you prepping now? Like what's next? So yeah, I'm I'm really focused in in TV right now. You know, I've, I've got I've actually sold two TV shows this this summer, um, uh, and so looking to get those you know fully into development and 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 on the air. Um, I'm also six scenes away from writing a feature length film based on my short film 90 days um uh called love will save the day um and then uh just other various projects you know i have i have a, a tv series uh called anemone's got talent which i've partnered with jim henson productions and it stars this wonderful puppet named anemone cartier that i i created with kevin clash who you know oh, yeah. uh, for, who, yeah. who, who was long standing elmo, elmo. Yeah. Um, who's a dear, dear friend of mine. I've known Kevin for 24 years and um, just various, you know, projects, but really leaning into TV and, you know, the Love Will Save of the Day is my next film. And we are, we will be shooting that in the spring of 2022 in, um, in Chicago, Pandemic Be Damned. Well, good luck. And that sounds amazing. And I was going to say, like, because the, the, the George Matthew Johnson sequel, you, you mentioned earlier, just came out. Would you want to go back and do the next All Boys Aren't Blue? Yes, uh, we're looking to to do it again and do it bigger and and expand it and 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 use what we learned and all the things that worked for All Boys Aren't Blue, and then hopefully have a big enough budget where I can go crazy and <laughs> really make it the, the the kind of experience that I have in my mind for it. Well, good luck. I would love to see that. And I would love to see your next film. I hope like best wishes and good luck on shooting in the spring. I I hope that uh, the COVID production stuff is going to be a little less onerous at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we shot Our Boys Aren't Blue in the height of the pandemic in January right. uh, of 2021. And uh, it, w- it was it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. I couldn't imagine doing that for three to four weeks or five weeks. Um, and that was another thing. We, we, we edited this in record time. We shot it January 8th and it premiered February 7th. My so. God, that's amazing. And, and it's a really lovely short. And I, where can people see this, by the way? Do you have any kind of distribution for it or is there a way that this is going to get out? Yeah, so we're still doing the festival circuit, and so we'll probably continue doing that through the end of the year. And, you know, we are looking to license the film to a streamer or a digital network or a network. Right. Um, and I, I've started that process now of, of, of trying to field, you know, offers and options there. Um, but yeah, I, I believe, and I think the entire team believes that it has a place on television um, so that as many people can see it as possible, just because it has, it's such a great message. And it's such an important conversation. And it's so timely, particularly within the black community. It's such a timely uh, conversation around the intersectionality of of blackness and black queerness and then our place in this community. And so, you know, with all of the negative stuff coming out, we want to provide a counter narrative to that and really educate our community and bring our community together around this conversation. So, yeah, our goal is to get it on a a streamer. So if you have if you know anybody, let us know. (laughs) You made a lovely, lovely film. I cannot wait for this to get out. And I really hope that as many people see it as possible. Uh, The movie is All Boys Aren't Blue. Nathan Hale Williams, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you, David. It has been my pleasure. This is great. I had a good time. Coming up after the break, I talk with Q. Ellen Broca and Daryl Stevens about their new streaming series and sequel to the 2006 feature, Boy Culture. Do you want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization and especially right now we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. Q. Allen Broca and Daryl Stevens, welcome to the Outcast. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for Thanks having, for having us. us. Now, Boy Culture, I remember seeing this movie um, back in 2006, I think it was, like when it came out. And it was, it kind of was the big thing at the time in gay cinema. Like it played like tons of festivals. And it was this big, big deal because it was this movie that was, you know, playing theatrically and kind of got out there and got reviewed at all these places. And what made you, Alan, come back to this story like 15 years later? Well, first, thank you so much for saying it was a big deal or seemed like it one. It was. <laughs> I was there. We really wanted to make it seem like one, but I don't know how. <laughs> well, I mean, we, you know, we're all, in, we're all indie filmmakers and we, you know, yeah. it's like, but you, like, it was a, a popular novel uh, by Matthew Redmond and, you know, you made it into a feature, you adapted it and it played in festivals. It, it had a long tail. I mean, I know a lot of people who just, he saw it for the first time on home video, but it just, it it just kept playing. Like everybody kind of knew this movie for like the next like, you know, decade. That's, That's exciting to hear. Cause yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm thrilled to hear this actually. I, I, well, I love hearing that too. I mean, we, we felt like there was a lot of, a lot of story there in the book and we, we capture some of it in the original film, but the setup of the book is every chapter is a confession and every confession is a different client. And, a, and just that whole, concept sounded like such a natural television show to me from the beginning, from the very first adaptation. And so we actually were trying to pitch this as a series right after the film. Um, it just seemed like such a perfect series of someone who is having sex with a different person in every episode and right. somehow that informs what's happening in their personal life. Um, I just thought that would be such a, a lovely series and it um, we could not get that get anyone to hop on board with us. It was like, it's going to be very gay and a lot of sex. And um, <laughs> it was just not why a good sell. Why in 2006 did they not go for that? But the today, networks were not lining up. I know, but today it's like, this is kind of made for that. I mean, it's like, you know, the, the mm -hmm. way that seri the, the media and series are consumed and certainly like, you know, um, I mean, I guess being gay is still kind of a niche, but this is like, this is very, it speaks directly to a given target audience. It's a lot of fun mm -hmm. to watch and it feels, it feels very lived in. It feels very real. Thank you. That's, yeah, that's, that's what we were going for. Um, yeah. For some reason back then, both gay and sex couldn't be in a pitch. People were interested in gay shows or they were interested in something really sexy and envelope pushing, but 
Uh, we just didn't want to see gay people doing it. Um, but I think that that's clearly changed a lot. We wrote this series back in 2013. So even then we were still kind of, well, let's just make it on their own. There will be a demand for this someday. Uh, we shot it in 2018 and there were a few shows starting to do that. But in the three years since 2018 and to 2021 <laughs> now, it feels like it's everywhere. I feel like, oh my God, I see all these stories. It's like euphoria, generation. Yeah. Um, the queer oh, gossip folk girl reboot. Yeah, I mean, yeah you everything know, has like it's amazing. full on intricate gay sex and, and interesting stories about different kinds of gay sex. And I just thought, I, I even, love it, but <laughs> even that I wish show that bonding, we'd that show bonding on yeah, Netflix bonding. Yeah, as, totally. as a, gay, a gay lead, yeah. Well, Daryl, what was it like coming back to this story after this amount of time? I mean, you know, you, you do in the first episode kind of set up where these characters have been and what, what's been going on and, and what happened, which and no, not really a spoiler. You and the lead, X, have broken up. You were together for seven years and you broke up. And and a lot of the series, at least the, the I watched the three episodes, uh, the first three. I know you guys have have made six, um, but it's kind of dealing with the boundaries in that relationship and, and how it how it's going to work in the future. Yeah. So coming back was, I will say that one of the, one of my favorite gigs to date was that film. It was my first on location shot shoot uh, in Seattle. It was basically me and Derek Magyar and um, Jonathan Trent running around Seattle together. And it was really this immersive experience where we got to just experience each other and very and develop relationships outside of the film that sort of reflected our relationships within the film. Um, like and how, so how much, to come how back, much did it reflect? <laughs> well, just in terms of like Derek was the dad. Oh, okay. I was the very like I was looking after everyone. That was far less lascivious than I was expecting. Well, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to out. Welcome to Outfest. Um, uh, and then, and and Jonathan was our kid in a lot of ways. He was much younger, uh, but we were all so excited to be there. Also excited to have this this film and all this and this great material to work with and to just really sink our teeth into. And so, um, and working with Alan was was incredible. Then also, so when we came back, when when the idea of a series was finally presented to me. Uh, I was thrilled to, to to revisit the character because Andrew is one of my faves because I don't get to play that kind of gay man very often. You know, it was it, he's kind of a he's sort of an anomaly for me. I, I do a, a zippy queen in a heartbeat, but like a but like a kind of lumbering, heady. Uh, um, well, I feel emotional like guy who's not necessarily figured out how to talk about his emotions. Um, right. That's not really what I do a lot of. So it's it, it was it's I love that character. I love playing Andrew. But he's very much comfortable with himself, and that's really the striking thing. And in fact, you can say that about almost everybody in the series. That unlike, I guess, a lot of the you know, I mean, it, there wouldn't really be gay stereotypes in this, really. But it's like you know, unlike a lot of the the ways that one would think about gays in mainstream, it's like every one of these characters. First of all, being gay is not a thing which is lovely. And then second of all, like every one of them seems reasonably comfortable in their sexuality and kind of like examining their sexuality. And for a show about sex and sex work in particular, it's kind of refreshing to see. It's not even non-judgmental. It's almost like it's, I want to say it's displayed almost positively. Yeah. Well, I've, I mean, Andrew in the, in the film, I think was definitely sort of wrestling with, uh, 
his his burgeoning sexuality and figuring sure. out how he wanted to manage his family and right. sort of deal with um, relationships and what monogamy might look like and all those things. And mm-hmm. then by the time we see them again in the in the in the series, um, he's been through it. He's been through all of that and figured out who he is, and he knows that he is not happy in his relationship with X and that they're they are just they don't work anymore and. A lot of the things that he was figuring out in the movie, you see that he has uh, grown very comfortable with by now and kind of figured out maybe the next phase for himself or is working on figuring out the next phase for himself in terms of of his own life, possibly outside of his relationship with X. So for me, that's that's all very exciting to play. Like I I felt like... Um, his sort of existential crisis. You haven't seen, I don't know how many episodes or when this in the series this takes place, but Andrew does come to this point where he's wondering, okay, so what am I supposed to be doing with my life? I'm not in a relationship with you. I'm not necessarily happy with my job. You know, I don't have a career yet. So what do I do? I'm in my 30s. (laughs) Andrew's much younger than Daryl. But I'm in my 30s and what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And so... Uh, I, that's something I think. I think a lot of a lot of men, people, gay men in particular, I think, feel this pressure to have a lot of stuff figured out by a certain age. And you know, I think it's interesting to to see what that looks like. I don't even think that's a gay thing. I think I mean I know a lot of straight friends of mine who are just like I'm in my 30s. I don't know what to do. And, and yes, absolutely, I, absolutely. I know exactly the scene you're talking about. That comes in episode three, I think. Um, I okay. did watch that. And it's arresting because basically it's a confrontation between you and X and you basically say like, when do you, like, what do you, I think it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up is what you ask him. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and the whole thing is like, it, it, I, I forget what the, what you actually say is something about an accountant. You're like a, yeah, uh, I think I was an accountant. Yes. You're, you're yes. some kind of an accountant and accounts I have to, payable. accounts payable, Specialist. right. And I, and I have to accept that this is kind of what I'm doing with my life. This is my this career is what path. I do. This is what I'm yeah. doing. And, and and maybe I'll be like, like senior accounts payable right. specialist mm-hmm. after this, right. Or VP of whatever. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a thing. I, I, I find my gay friends tend to be a little bit more, a little bit harder on themselves in terms of what their careers look like. I think that for whatever reason we are, uh, we have to create our stories. We have to create yeah, our lives have, in a way that straight people may not have to because, because it's, it's, it's laid, laid out, out for them in a different way. Yeah. 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 Like we, we have to throw away the book and kind of like come up with our own book or help other, other gay men help us come up with the book of what we're going to do. Exactly. But the series, it, it seems like it's about actually like gay men dealing with their lives in kind of approaching middle age, which mm-hmm. is really interesting because I don't think that, you know, gay men, there was a whole generation ahead of us, like 10, 15 years ahead of us that like, you know, half or two thirds were just gone. Right. And we didn't have those mentors and we didn't have those role models and we didn't have those stories of those out gay men Mm -hmm. like discovering what middle age is. Yeah. Navigating middle age is a whole different thing. Like like, we're really the first generation of, of of a a large amount of out gay men Mm -hmm. who are defining what this is. And we also didn't have the structure of family, really. It was rare that two men would be married or call themselves married, and even rarer that they would have children somehow. Um, Now it's very, very common. Um, But we're kind of the first 
the first generation that that's happening to. Um, so, um, it, well, there was a stigma about this, that too. I mean, it was looked down yeah. as heteronormative. I mean, it was exactly. looked at like, how yeah. dare you get married and have kids? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's what the straights do. We got out of that, but it's like, right. you know, but, but being open to that choice, I think is really interesting. And, and, mm-hmm. and it's really refreshing to see a, a piece of work like this kind of address that directly. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting how often just as humans, we, We'll often define ourselves when we're introducing ourselves to people by our family and by our profession. Um, And now Andrew's almost in a space where he doesn't really have either or he doesn't really want to talk about either. Um, He does have a a family kind of with X and he does have a profession, but neither is something that he is very happy with. So who is he? Um, And that question is something that I struggle with all the time. And I just really um, used Andrew to kind of work that out and, 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 um, explore that. Cause I, I think a lot of people are, um, maybe have a dream about have a, maybe some kind of profession and some have a dream about, um, maybe not necessarily a specific profession they want. It's just something that they, that is not what they are doing now. Um, and at what point in life, um, do you say, Oh, well, I guess this is what I am because I've been doing this job for 20 years. Um, I don't think the thing of maybe getting into music somehow that I'm not really sure, but I know I love music is, is going to be a thing. And how much you define yourself through what you do as well. Yeah. And I think one of the things Daryl was mentioning earlier is how it it is a little bit different for gay men is because we don't have those family structures ingrained into us because we've been either working against it or just didn't have the right to create that. That was not an expectation put upon us. And for many of us, it the idea of even getting married and maybe having kids was not even a concept that seemed realistic. Um, even now, um, it, it's it's more realistic, but it, it, just, it just seems super expensive. It's, it's still very hard, yeah, yeah unless you yeah, have tons and tons of it's money. It's very difficult. We can't just, you know, accidentally have a baby. Hard as we try. I know, we can try and try. <laughs> right. So that's one of the definitions taken away or that we don't have is, is this idea of, of, of family. It's a little bit tougher, so we lean a little bit more on the career aspect of ourselves. Yes. I mean, so a lot of things have changed in the last 15 years when it comes to sex work. Um, mm-hmm. Did you talk to anybody, like, you know, any any kind of escorts of today and just get the skinny on, like, how things have changed since, like, the mid-2000s? Yeah. Um, fortunately, because of boy culture, uh, <laughs> I, I've met a lot of escorts. Um, <laughs> oh, and it's no. Just always, it's, well, <laughs> oh, yes. People are interested in talking about it. Um, and I think, uh, like, the the website Rent Boy was one of our sponsors. So I don't know that I got in with the crowd, but I, I met a lot of people. And and it just it's always been interesting to see how it's now becoming about completely openly marketing yourself and becoming, I, I think, the, the speech that Chase gives in the second episode about branding. Um, what, what we're looking for in branding has even changed because... I mean, sure, there still is a little bit of excitement of anonymity, and that's kind of how the business used to work. But now um, there's an obsession of with fame and just the idea of being able to get somebody that you've been lusting after for, for a while, and oh, you can just buy them. Um, is like I, I can't imagine that being available to me when I was 
18. <laughs> you know, and you, you think know about I mean? <laughs> think about the difference in the way we have sex. Gay men have sex now. Grinder didn't mm-hmm. exist when we were like yeah. out in the streets, right? We were like right. having to go find people. But now, if you want something anonymous, you you look at your phone. There's a headless torso right there. That's anonymous. <laughs> if you want if you want to see someone's face, you go to Instagram and find someone who's on also an OnlyFans. Like mm-hmm. even since the pandemic started, I feel like there's been this huge influx of of people who were doing sex work because their you know their waiter jobs their trainer jobs fell apart because mm-hmm. of the pandemic so yeah. there's a completely new even since we shot this in 2018 there's like right. a whole new sex sex industry that is is yeah. booming and, and what's so interesting is a large part of sex work before was um just a lot of people would turn to hustlers because it was hard to find sex in general it was hard to meet anyone but now it is easier than ever to have free sex um, yeah. <laughs> to meet anyone. Yeah. But there, the demand has not declined for paid sex at all. It is like increased. So it's just so interesting to me how we are, uh, how the reasons for um, the demand in sex work are really no longer that it's just hard to get. Right. It is. It is. It is people looking for a product almost, looking yeah. for the thing that they want in this moment that they're willing to pay for. So it's much more about specificity, really, is what you're saying. It's kind of like uh, the fantasy can come true just because everything's kind of available. Mm-hmm. It's also probably about control, right? I think that when you're you're you got a grinder hookup, anything can happen. And right. when you mm-hmm. have a very specific order on yeah. the menu, you know, you make right. you order from a menu, <laughs> you get something that you know uh-huh. you know what it's going to look like, you know what, mm-hmm. what all the things look like, and this is actually him, you know. Right. So. <laughs> And if you want no emotional strings attached for whatever reason. Right. Right. I remember Charlie Sheen had a quote when Heidi Fleiss, remember the Heidi Fleiss thing? Like when Mm -hmm. she was the Hollywood, the the Beverly Hills madam, and she had all this list of of all of these celebrities. And everyone's like, why would Charlie Sheen, who was like at that point super hot and like in his like, you know, physical peak and he could get any woman he wanted or really anyone he wanted really um you know basically <laughs> they asked him like why he would would go to a prostitute and he's like i don't pay for sex i pay them to leave mm-hmm. and that, that always mm. struck me and and when i run into people who have kind of an like a, a degree of fame like you know either they're like known people or kind of semi-known people and they've talked about this they basically said the same thing it's like you know sometimes it's just like it's too crazy and you know it's just like i want sex and i don't want anything else and you know that's what'll happen that's interesting i hadn't heard that quote that's actually very interesting yeah. i pay them to leave <laughs> i pay yeah, them to wow. leave i mean there's an absolute convenience factor to it as well i, I talked to a lot of people who also um buy escorts or pay or pay for pay for escorts right um just to to get reasoning and it wasn't all you know I, I think the most common thing was it was just convenient it was like easier than going out and trying to find someone easier than spending hours on grinder easier than dealing with moving a relationship from right to, to having sex moving it was like this is what i want and um i'll pay for it oh the other thing is that grinder also presents you with all these opportunities for rejection yeah right mm-hmm. Like yep, there's a yep. lot of there's a lot of people talk about you know how off how abused their self esteem feels after going on, mm-hmm. on grinder just in terms of people's preferences and whatnot. So yeah, I think paying for it also alleviates that stress. Mm-hmm. So you guys launched a 
uh, Kickstarter for Boy Culture, the series, in 2017. And Mm -hmm. what was that process like? Because you hear about Kickstarters and you hear about indie films and indie products starting these things. And it's just, I know uh, it's so much work. Yeah, it it is. It's a lot of um, reaching out to everyone that you've ever met and like (laughs) groveling and saying that you get me. And then maybe getting $5 and then owing that person like, (laughs) <laughs> whatever like <laughs> a beer cozy that like, says yeah, like a million times that <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it, it is it is stressful uh, it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of like reloading pages and um just e- emailing all of all of these people. It's, that, a, it's a glamorous world of independent That maybe filmmaking. do not want to hear from you and they definitely do not want to hear you from you to ask for money. <laughs> So one of the things that I know has changed from the feature to now is the daddy thing is much more of a thing now than it was in the mid 2000s, I think. Oh, it is. Uh Oh, don't you think? I mean, I I mean, I remember hearing it was consistent. I didn't. No, no, I remember. I remember hearing about the daddy thing like in the 90s and the 2000s. But I think Mm -hmm. it's much more kind of out of the closet now and certainly in the last like, you know, five to ten years than it Mm -hmm. was in the early 2000s. It still existed, but I mean, I right, you right. know, like you have a whole section um, in one of the episodes where X is for the first time, or or at least for the first time recently, being called a daddy, and he's just like, right. "Oh, I didn't want to hear that." And then finally, by the end, he's like, "Yeah, okay, I can deal because he's, you know, it's it's working, it's working for uh, him." I'm gonna say that's just all my own personal hangups and weirdnesses and and things that I wanted to get out. Um, the daddy thing probably happened to me around the boy culture film um, around that time when that came out. Um, I was like, oh, I'm a daddy now? What? <laughs> no, I'm, what about, you know, um, and how that felt. And, I, and like that was a specific, I remember the moment where I was when I was first referred to as that. <laughs> and, wow. I, and that's where that came from. Um, and you were, and you were 22 was, in, in 2006, correct? <laughs> uh, right. the, yeah, that was like, you know, 15 years ago when that happened. So now I don't know what I am now. <laughs> but... But I'm glad that it's still a big thing, <laughs> that it's relatable still today. What were you going to say, Daryl? Just this idea that, again, gay men don't know what the, what how to navigate middle age. I mean, particularly if you're someone who is seen as sexy when you're younger, we don't know, we don't know yet how to age. And if you're in Hollywood in particular, where we're seeing everyone getting work done and, and, and defying age a lot of the time... And and in the gym at at sixty, you know, with a flawless body, like where? How do we g- grow into our our middle age without yeah. feeling like we're falling apart and losing everything that we have to offer the gay world? You know, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a struggle for a lot of folks. I've seen I've seen a lot of us sort of struggle with it. And so for mm-hmm. X to go through that in the first episode and sort of come out on the other side, I felt like okay, that's a very <laughs> tidy and yeah. efficient process for him because I would have had a a little bit of a breakdown. I'm currently having a breakdown. <laughs> well, I mean, this leads me back because, like, you were you were on uh, the Outcast in season one from your f- uh, film from Zero to I Love You, yeah, uh, the Doug Spearman film. And I asked you this question sort of here, but I'm just going to ask you more directly. The fuck is your secret? Like, because I can't even with you. I just can't. I cannot fucking even with you. I said this to you before, and I still mean it. It's like I do not understand how. 
you managed to look almost identical to how you were 15 years ago I, it's, right it's the lighting now. In, it's the lighting in this oh, window, stop David. It. I promise stop you. It. I, no, I, stop it. Try, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> the age is happening. It is real, and it is sitting on my face. And Alan, I knew you since um, Rick and Steve, really. Yeah, it's been a Rick long and Steve time. was after Boy Culture, wasn't it? Well, no, 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 the first well, the series, the series was, but the shorts were. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's like right. 2000. I met, that's right. Yeah. I met, I met, I met Alan back. Like, oh lord, I mean, you know, it was the early two thousands for sure. Yeah, um, two thousand was the first one, so it's been. A which long. it was a lovely little animated short film or series of animated short films. I know there was just yeah, the first one. Oh, there were four, right? And and they went to every festival, and they basically. Uh, you know, they're stop motion animation, um, very, very dirty and lovely and wonderful. And it won all of these awards and they were just hilarious. Um, and that kind of led that, that kind of broke you into the, into the, the world of filmmaking, right, Alan? I mean, that kind of led to all this other stuff. Yeah, that was definitely my in, um, it was an assignment at school. I was in film school at the time, uh, at CalArts and I had to make a short about relationships and I made the first episode of Rick and Steve. And I was just going to show it at school, um, but there was a Outfest volunteer who went to my school and said, "Oh, you should submit this to Outfest. Can I have a videotape? I'll bring it over." Oh wow! And he brought he it said to the, the fest. Word videotape. It, it was a VHS <laughs> tape that I gave him. It was it was 1999. You know, it was wow. a long time wow. ago. Um, and they said they'd show it, and I didn't know what Outfest was. I thought it was going to be like a, a gym in a high school, like showing some gay movies and with a pull down screen. Um, <laughs> and, and I was like, cool. And it was like two months away. It was like really not the official way to be part of it. And then, you know, the next thing I know, I'm at the DGA having this screening, and it was seeing people in the audience and crowd that I recognized. Yeah. Uh, I just moved here. Like, everyone that I ever heard of was like, I saw Wilson Cruz and I was like, oh my God, there's a huge, I was like so excited the first time I saw him. Um, it was just, I, I was thrown for a loop and um, then I won the audience award at Outfest and I just became a fixture there. They cannot get rid of me. It's, <laughs> it's now my 23rd year go, going there. Um, That's I, I love the festival. So yeah. many people. How many panels have you done? You've been on a lot. I mean, you've done Outfest. I know you were on the screenwriting. You were a mentor in the screenwriting lab at least mm -hmm. one or two times, I think. Like a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, probably at least. like four or five times. Yeah. Um, I mentor the Outset Shorts. I do that now. Um, I was on the board for a few years, but I was terrible at basically just ask people for money. I was really bad at that. <laughs> it's an important part of the process. <laughs> yes. Um, but, I've been, <laughs> but I've been to the festival almost every year. I've been there nine years as a filmmaker wow. since the beginning. Um, I love Outcast. So you, are you close with the author of the novel, Boy Culture? We've become close. So I didn't know him uh, when I first became attached. Um, I met the producer... Uh, Philip Pierce had optioned the novel. Right. Um, we had a meeting over it, and he hired me to do a, a rewrite. I don't think I met Matthew until maybe until either just before the shoot. Did he come? I don't think he visited the set. Do you no, I met him. I met him after the, we shot it for I sure. I think I might not have met him until afterwards too. Um, but I love him. We get along so well. And uh, I just wanted to write this with him. And I had such a good time writing with him. He's so smart. He's so funny. And um, he just has, 
he has something to say about everything and it's always interesting and I can never predict what it's going to be and I love that you can't you can't ask for more in a writing partner well it's, it's it kind of like the show so I mean right you're, you're watching the show and you don't know where it's going in any one of these episodes mm-hmm. um, and it always kind of goes to this interesting and, and unexpected place but it all kind of ties up well, thank you that's what that's t- what we were trying to do <laughs> uh, no really really uh, we we there are a lot of kind of conventions and predictable endings to situations and we just always wanted to not do that but have a good reason for not ending the way you expect i don't i don't like it when things just don't end the way you expect for no reason at all um and do, writing that with matthew made it so much easier and so much more fun oh, i'm sure and and so how, you shot this in 2018 so w- tell me i mean i know covid probably just threw a huge wrench in all the works to like kind of get this finished and get this out there. I mean, it's a great excuse. (laughs) (laughs) Take it. Take the excuse. But we were moving pretty slow before COVID came along. Um, It's just that we had the money to shoot it, but we didn't have the money to do anything else with it. Yeah. So everything else was like, okay, we've done our Kickstarter. What are we doing now? What do we do with this footage? Right. Um, And, you know, we have this great editor, Mark Dash now, but he, um, you know, we could not afford to have him as our full-time editor the whole time so he had to have a day job in order to work for us right so you know it was like i can give you a couple of days a month so that took a while and it's pulling in each piece being very careful with how we're spending what little money we had um is how we we got across the finish line with the budget that we had well it looks- but it took a long time it looks super sharp, though. I mean, it's just gorgeously shot, and and everything zips along really well. It's like, what's? I, I know you're probably out to uh, different distributors and trying to to figure out where it's going. Or, I mean, or do, or do you know where it's going yet? Or are you still kind of talking to people? We don't know where it's going yet. Um, we, yeah, we're having conversations now. Our dream is for it to find a place where they want to make more. I mean, that that's ideally what we'd like to do. Where would you see these characters going in the future? Like, you know, in, in a very or, or do you not want to spoil it? Well, um, I, I think I can come up with an answer without spoiling it. I, I think they would all have a lot more sex. Um, and <laughs> And I think yeah, there's not will, a lot of sex. There's not <laughs> yeah. too much sex in the in the. Yeah, attention marketing it's really people. more about more sex, the, like how the sex affects them than the actual sex itself. Yeah. But I think they will definitely they will have more of these encounters that will affect their lives. Um, and it, yeah, I think they'll continue to age and continue to to deal with those things and ideas that come along with that. And Daryl, you're really busy right now. You are on season two of Be Positive, the Chuck Lorre show on CBS, and you were just made, I believe, a series regular, correct? Yes. That is fan-fucking-tastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's, it's, it's a blessing to be working at all right now, and to be working on a show like that is, is, is pretty exciting. I've heard a lot of stuff about Chuck Lorre being this, like, irascible genius um, like, what's it like working with him? I mean, is he is he one of the people that's kind of on this? Is he like you know? Well, what's show interesting is it? that in the first season, uh, he was very busy with the Kaminsky method, and then right. I believe he was doing uh, United States of Al. So he would step in, he would dip in, check out, make sure everyone was being funny, and then <laughs> go back to what he was doing. <laughs> uh, so we saw maybe a total of honestly last season probably six times, six seven times. This. This season, he is there every day. We see him every time we're on the stage. He's there. 
Uh, I think he's writing a lot of it. He's very much involved in this, um, what I'm kind of calling a spinoff with all the same characters. Because the first season, I don't know if you watched it, but the first season is about a, a, a divorced dad going through dialysis. Right. Renal failure. Right. And having, and having uh, a, an old friend from high school offer to donate her kidney to him. And then at the end of the season, spoiler alert, he gets the kidney. So then the second season has to be about something else, right? Because right. Th- all the dialysis shit doesn't stuff. Excuse me, all the dialysis stuff doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you can curse on here. It's all oh, good. Bitch. Oh, good Wait. shit. Okay. <laughs> all the, the dialysis shit doesn't work anymore. So the second season is about this very sort of like oh, go, and now we're going here, and it's it's um, you know the actors, or at least me, I, me and the, and the actors I'm talking to on a regular basis don't know where we're going. It's a very different, it's a very different process, but it's very exciting at the same time because it just means that it feels like when we're on set, anything can happen. We have been. I hope I'm not getting. In, I don't get in trouble. Don't, don't get, don't, don't get in have, trouble. But but tell us have, everything. Uh, we have. <laughs> <laughs> we have Ben. This was in the the the. the the announcement that they made in Deadline, so I can say this. Ben Vereen is on the show. Um, um, Jane Seymour is on the show. Linda Lavin's coming back, obviously. She was brilliant in the first season. Uh, We have all these amazing sort of Broadway and television stars from yesteryear. Not even yesteryear. They've been working nonstop. But who are famous for for, for 50 years, right? Coming onto this show to sort of inhabit this new world that we're creating. So it's it's the whole time. I mean, Annalie Ashford and I were, were just looking at Ben Vereen last week and just going, "Do you see what he's doing?" Do you, we <laughs> giggling like ninnies in the corner while we're on, you know, while they're filming us, just like amazed at what's happening. So, it's very, very fun. It's very exciting. And Chuck is Chuck's a lot of fun. Chuck Chuck is is exciting to have on set because when he likes something, he laughs, and his laugh is very distinctive. And you you work for that laugh. He he makes you work for it, and it's. It's it's fun. It's fun. It's very that fun. That is amazing, to be there. and that's fantastic. And if Ben Vereen were on my set, I swear to her, I would do. I would have to use every fiber of my being to not start singing Pippin immediately, <laughs> totally. because Jesus Christ, Ben Vereen, or or the end of all that jazz. One of the two. I'm not sure, but it's like and they, he, he's amazing. He's in the dressing room next to me, and I'm not even joking. He is literally tooting on a recorder, a magical recorder, all the time. Just like being whimsical <laughs> that's on like, the other side of this wall. That's like almost like that's almost like you know how you would imagine Ben Vereen to be if and you were dreaming it, and then he yes. is that person. That would be that's so crazy. And he walks on. He has these like black uh, fingerless gloves. Oh my! I don't know why you're blowing very, my like, mind, but you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> really, like just to think like, of Ben Vereen like with a, a recorder he's like with a these, magic person. Oh my yeah. god! He's got yeah. magic to do just he's for got you. Magic to do. <laughs> All the time. Well, I cannot wait to see Boy Culture, the streaming series, when it, it like lands wherever it lands. I really want to see it. Where's I? I know it's like got a ton of festivals. Where's it going next? Uh, this weekend we'll be in San Diego screening the whole series. Oh, that's so good! A centerpiece. That's and a fun. That's a fun festival. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it. We're all going down and spending the night and watching it with an audience. Well, have have fun and enjoy it because this is a lot of fun. And I'm like, I I didn't know I missed these people so much, but I really did. It was really lovely to see them. And I hope it lands somewhere streaming. And I hope that you guys get to make, you know, 
27 more because this was just a lot of fun to watch. Thank you, David. Alan Broca, Daryl Stevens, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. What a great time. And that was part two of Highlights from Outfest. Next week, I talk with Javier Fuentes Leon about his hilarious ensemble comedy drama, The Best Families. And then I talk with Jane Schoenbrunn about her fantastic, creepy, experimental feature, We're All Going to the World's Fair. And this has been The Outcast, presented by Outfest. For more, go to outfest.org slash theoutcast. The Outcast is executive produced by me, David Kittredge, Ismail El-Sharif, and Alan Koningsberg. Special thanks to Damian Navarro, Daniel Crook, and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. Mixed by Craig Lawrence Smith. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next time.